it's funny how God brings people into your world at the right time for very specific purposes. Uh, Paul shared some stuff with me last night about the journey, and um, I've no intention whatever to look backwards. I'm here to help us look forwards. But I do believe that God takes us all through stuff as churches and as individuals, which leaves a mark on us, it shapes us, and actually we can turn all that to so much good. We can turn it to so much positive kingdom-bindling material that that's essentially what we have to do. Take the treasure from the trash and then press on and build what God has put in our heart. And what I believe God has gifted you with as senior pastors here is a church builder. Somebody who loves people, loves Stoke, loves this church and wants to see it thrive and be strong. It's not about him, it's about the message, it's about the mission. And I love that spirit. We're kindred spirits in that sense. Um, I've spent all my ministry life working for very inspirational, kind of apostolic, prophetic, high-powered leaders. And my my ministry has essentially been helping them make their dream a reality as part of a team. I've never been a senior pastor. I've never wanted to be a senior pastor. But I've been the best me I can be. And as a builder, essentially a builder, church builder, I believe God has helped me work through a lot of mistakes, a lot of stuff which I hope together we can learn from this morning because we're going to look at one of my favorite Bible characters who was a builder, Um, and that's Nehemiah. Before I get to that, let me just say a little bit about my journey to set context. I've said I'm a builder. Basically, I was a chartered building surveyor, my original profession before I went into ministry, I've now been in ministry for 30-odd years, 34 years it'll be this year. So I've been in ministry the large part of my life, but retained my building surveying credentials. Um, if any of you have been to Life Church campus in Bradford, all those buildings I built, I sort of project managed them, was very involved with that, helped lots of other churches around the UK with physical building projects. But, and it's, I just laugh, I think God doesn't let anything go to waste. He, t- he took the practical builder and kind of made me a spiritual builder. But because of that background, I tend to reference building analogies a lot. So forgive me if I go off on one on, on building-related stuff, because Nehemiah was a builder and he built walls, and we're building church and all that. There was um, an occasion some years ago, it was about 2007, 2008, and we were, we were building up at Bradford our, the last wing of the campus it was about a two million pound project. We were building extra classrooms, hospitality space, lecture theatre for the academy, which I was principal of and founded for many years. And <clears throat> great project. I remember the day I got a phone call from the reception, sat in my office, saying, the architect's here, and uh, can he come up? Apparently he's got the contract with him. I thought to myself, awesome, this is a good day. Because if you've been involved in building projects, you'll know they go, they go on behind the scenes for ages, endlessly, planning, details, costings, banks, finance, all that stuff. But eventually a day comes when you sign a contract and it's nailed. Now nothing's going to change. We've got everything lined up. The ducks are in a row. Let's sign the paperwork. So this was a good day. So I said, great, send him up. Architect comes up to my office, wanders in, shakes me heartily by the hand, sits down, and then I said to him, I just suddenly noticed he's not carrying anything, not even a briefcase. I said, I thought you were bringing the contract. He says, oh, it's coming. And suddenly, behind him into the room came this young lad from his office with three great big boxes. He staggered in like this and dropped them on the desk, went, doof. And there were, there were three sort of like photocopier paper boxes, you know, that sort of stuff, about that big, three of them. He kind of went, one for you, one for the contractor, one for me, sign them. And I looked at this thing. I said, now I know why I pay you such a lot of money, architects. In that document was every plan for the building. There was every quantity, in other words, how much steel, how much concrete, how many screws, how many nuts, bolts, carpet, light bulbs, everything was in that. And it was every eventuality. You know, what if something goes wrong, what will happen, how it can be fixed? Everything was in that contract. 
Not that that was in my head. I was just glad to see it. So I cheerily signed the top copy, sent him on his way, and we started the build. Ten-month build. Eight months in to the ten-month build, I get another phone call from the architect in my office. Hey, Steve, how are you doing? Okay, good, good, good. And he said, are you, uh, well, I've got something to tell you. Are you sat down? Yeah, yeah, okay, come on, come on. I'm afraid the builder's gone bust. I went, that's why he's quiet on the side this morning. Because <laughs> <clears throat> I'd driven in thinking, there's not many high-vis jackets around, and there was, there was no buzz, it was kind of quiet. Said, that's why he's quiet, he says. Yeah, he said, they've, sorry to say, but they've gone bust. So administrators are dealing with it, but they will not be coming to finish the building off. Well, I went into panic mode. It's like, oh, my Lord. Um, it was watertight, but, you know, two months from the end, all the major finishes weren't done. It was like, I'm thinking, what on earth? And he could hear the panic in my voice. He said, calm down. Calm down. And he said, do you remember that contract you signed? And suddenly it comes back to me. The boxes, signing it off. He says, that contract is now going to save our life, all being well. Long story short, because of the contract, he was able to immediately get other people to come in, do the work. He actually saved us money in the long run. But I had this panic moment, and afterwards I was reflecting on it, and it just struck me. We ended up with a finished building because we had a contract. Whew, I was so glad we'd done it right. So God, we, you know, glad we hadn't gone down the back street route, you know, just doing it on the cheap. But we, so glad. And as I reflected on it, God took me in my thinking to Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah, he built the walls of Jerusalem. He built the city of God, God's address. And here I am trying to play my part in building the church in our day and age. And God kind of dropped this thought in my heart. Nehemiah succeeded too, even though he had trouble. And you're going to succeed even though you've got trouble right now because you've got a contract. And I began to reread Nehemiah's story looking for whether or not Nehemiah had a contract. <laughs> and what I've realized is <clears throat> the people that built Jerusalem with Nehemiah, there was like this implicit agreement amongst them which guaranteed building the city of God was a success. And I want to suggest to you, here you are in Stoke, building this great church, and in your heart is to build it strong. In your heart is to build it well. It's to leave a legacy for coming generations, to minister to this community. That's in your heart. Well, I believe to build it that way demands a contract of sorts. It demands kind of an agreement from the builders about how it's going to be done and how we're going to pull together and achieve what is in our hearts. So what's on the blueprint becomes reality. You know, Nehemiah, <clears throat> Jerusalem was in a mess back in Nehemiah's day. God's people had forsaken him, fallen into sin, broken the law. And as a result, they'd been taken into captivity. So most of the Jews were actually in Babylon at this point. And what had been left in Jerusalem was crumbled down walls, gates that had been burned. It was a place for sort of wolves and jackals, poor people. It was a, it was a ruin. And there was a remnant, a few of the Jews back there, just kind of keeping it ticking over at a very low, poverty-stricken level. But all the wealth... All the nobles, all the good stuff had been stolen by the Babylons and shipped off. And Nehemiah was one of those guys who'd been shipped off. But he got himself a good job. He'd ended up as a cupbearer to the king. He was working in the palace environment. But his heart as a Jew was kind of back there. Now the interesting thing about back there was Jerusalem was effectively God's address. It's where the temple was. It's where the Ark of the Covenant that represented God's presence among his people resided. So if you wanted to know, well, where's the God of the Jews, the God of Israel? They say, oh, it's Jerusalem. You went to Jerusalem, and what did you find? 
a right mess. It's a shambles. It did not testify well to the greatness and goodness of the God of Israel. Question, where does God live today? He lives here. He lives in you and he lives in me. In the new covenant in Christ, we are living stones being built together into a house in which God is pleased to dwell by his Holy Spirit, the New Testament says. So as we build, and people say, well, where's the God of the Christians? You know, I'm a stokey. Where, where, where's God around here? They say, oh, that breathe crowd up there. That's... And they come up here, and they meet us. What do they find? Do they find the shambles? Or do they find something that goes, wait, what great people. What an awesome thing that's happening here. Because it's, it's the spiritual equivalent. Now, the Old Testament is there as shadows and types to point us toward the reality we have today. We are God's address. We're the equivalent of Jerusalem back then. <clears throat> God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in us. Just like he lived in that box called the Ark of the Covenant that was placed in the temple. So when we look at Nehemiah and how he built the walls... I want to pull a parallel through to how we are building our church, this church today, with the living stones at our disposal. You're the living stones. If you call this church your church home, if you're part of this church family, you're a living stone. And you're being built together with others into an edifice that the world is supposed to say, wow, let's go up to the house of the God of Israel. And let's find out how he can lead us into a better way of living than what we have without him. So that's the parallel I want to draw as we think about this thought this morning. I've made the point that <clears throat> I think in Nehemiah's story, there's this implicit building agreement, this contract between the workers and uh, I, I've got, I want to share three aspects of that with you in the time I've got. Maybe a fourth if we have time. We'll see how we get on. But th there's, there's three that I really feel God wants me to get off my chest and get into your heart this morning. The first is this. If you're going to successfully build God's house, this church together, the first thing you must all do is feel what God feels about it. Because as I read Nehemiah's story, um, trying to work out what was it that moved him to do what he did, it was simply because he felt something. This is how it goes in Nehemiah chapter 1. It says that in the <clears throat> month of Kisleth, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, one of my brothers came from Judah with some of the other men, and I questioned them about the remnant that had survived the exile in Jerusalem. So here he is, working in Babylon. His brother comes and visits, asks the questions. So they say to him, well, those who survived the exile and are back in the province, they're actually in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem's broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. And they give this negative picture. And verse 4 says this, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, and he launches into this long prayer of repenting on behalf of God's people. As soon as he heard that God's house was in a mess, he felt something. I wonder what you feel about this expression of God's house, this church, this community. Because the truth is, he was motivated to do something because he felt something. As you read on into chapter 2, effectively he goes to work the next day, working for the king. And uh, <clears throat> verse 1 says that, When I brought wine to the king, I took it in and gave it to him. And I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, he says. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. 
why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, hmm, what is it you want? And that was the beginning of a conversation in which the king gave him permission to go back to Jerusalem to be part of the answer to the issue he felt so strongly about and actually resourced him in the doing of it. Part of God's plan. You know, he felt something. He was moved by God and I believe that what he felt was what God felt. He felt what God felt when he looked at Jerusalem and saw that the temple was in ruins and the walls were in ruins and it was just a shambles, a disgrace. Trouble and disgrace are the right words to use. And Nehemiah kind of felt it. And that made him do something about it. And I believe it's exactly that same dynamic that motivates all local churches to do good stuff in their community. That makes them want to reach the lost. Makes them want to help people find Christ. Be restored, forgiven, healed, blessed. It's what makes us want to do church in a way that's relevant to the community that we're, we're, we're in. We want to make God accessible. Because God feels something for this community and he feels something for us and the part we can play with him in reaching it but what galvanizes the builders together is that we all feel what God feels and other fingers amongst you might be saying hang on a minute Steve we're not emotion driven people we don't do things because we feel them we do things because you know God tells us well understand my heart when I say we feel what God feels, I'm not on about your emotions. I'm not on about a mood, feeling happy or sad. I'm on about feeling it in your spirit, in the part of you that relates to God, that talks to God. Christ in you, the spirit of Christ in you. That is the most important sensory organ you've got. Yeah, you've got your natural senses, but for us as Christians, sensing what God is saying, doing, feeling, drawing us into, yeah. is more important. Yeah. And we have to let that have the priority. And I believe that Nehemiah, he had all his senses functioning in the natural. But this day when he heard something with his ears, something in his heart went, oh my God. He wept, he fasted, he prayed. And he went to God, not just, oh God. He went to God for, what can we do about this? Because when God gets on you about a thing, part of your answer is supposed to be, how can I be part of the answer? How can I fix it? <clears throat> so he has to set about finding people of like heart and mind who feel the same as he does to be part of fixing it. Show me a great church, I'll show you people like that. We all feel what God feels for that church and that community. Show me a great Christian ministry. You'll find people like that. They're all feeling what God feels. And they're actually moved to be the difference by a kind of a complaint, by a, a disturbance, by something they feel strongly about. It's not all just, ooh, goosebumps and lovely. Sometimes it's pain you feel. Sometimes it's anger you feel. People, we've got to fix this. It's not right. And God's saying, that's right, son. Off you go, fix it, my friend. <laughs> Find some people who feed the same as I do, and let's make a difference. It's kind of how it works. I wonder why you're in this church if you're in it. If you call this church home, why are you here? If this isn't your church home and you're a guest today, why are you in the church you are? I hope at one level it is because you feel what God feels for it. You feel what God feels about the mission of that church, about its, its purpose, its style of doing things, its stated objectives. I hope you're not just there as a passenger. I hope you're not there as a consumer, saying to the pastor each week, come on, feed me. I hope you're there feeling what God feels, and therefore putting your whole weight in, Putting, yeah, your money, your time, your serving, your energy, your faith, your prayer. Just being part of the answer. Because you feel what God feels. You know, if, you don't want, if you don't feel what God feels for Stoke and for this church as an expression of his life in it, you'll never get involved. You'll dance around on the fringe. You'll, you'll be here 
in body, potentially. You'll make numbers up. But if you really feel it, if you're willing to say, God, please help me to feel what you feel. It's quite a dangerous prayer to pray, actually. But if you're willing, say, God, help me to feel what you feel. It will change your life. It will bring you to life. It will give you purpose and an expression of working with God that maybe you've not had before. I think to successfully build, you've got to all feel what God feels. I think the guys that he ended up building with, I haven't got time to show you all the scriptures, but he goes on a recce of the build of the, of the walls and <clears throat> they all agree together, come on, this is a good thing we have to do. He finds people of like heart and mind as Nehemiah. And that's kind of what you do when you join yourself to a local church, I think. You find people of like heart and mind who want to express the life of God in the way that you all love and feel is effective and you all pile in together to get the job done. Which leads to my second thought. So I think there's this implicit agreement. We all feel what God feels. That's why we're involved in rebuilding these walls. The second thing was this. I think there was an agreement amongst the team that Nehemiah had that every single one of them would play their part. You see, you can feel something, but still do nothing about it. You can love the preaching. <clears throat> you can love the worship. You can love the vibe. You can love the friendship, but still not actually get your hands dirty in doing the building work. Because what is the building work of doing church? The real building work is going out to the quarry face of this world and blasting out new stones, reaching people who become the next living stones that are going to be built in to this spiritual house we're building. That's kind of the hard work. It's taking those stones and working with God to shape them up and to make sure they snugly fit together so they look brilliant, so it's functional. That, that's kind of the real work. Get involved in that. Takes time, energy, money, commitment, and all the other stuff we talk about. Well, I see that spirit in these builders in Nehemiah's day. Chapter three of Nehemiah's book is one of those chapters that sometimes when you read your Bible, you're tempted just to miss. There's quite a few of those, isn't there, if we're honest? <clears throat> you don't believe me, try Chronicles, first 13 chapters, you'll soon know what I mean. <clears throat> long lists of genealogies, long lists of names, you think, why is it even here? Well, there is a reason for it, trust me, there is a reason for it all. But Nehemiah, chapter 3 is a little bit like that, because what it is, is a list of the builders. And it starts at verse 1, and it basically says, Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. So they start to rebuild the sheep gate. And then it tells us that somebody or other built next to him, built next to him, built next to him, and they go around in a great big circle, and the last verse of the chapter is, back to the sheep gate. So it's literally a list of all the people that got involved in the building. And as I began to sort of discipline myself to read it properly, <laughs> God started to show me a few things. First was this, it was the, the random nature of the people that were involved in building these walls. You see, if you were building walls, you would want a bricky. You'd want some good strong lads who could mix some cement for you. You'd want guys who could take the bricks and the stones. You'd want people that were strong. You've got a very sort of distinct skill set and people group in your head. Whereas when I read this list, well, the first people were priests. I don't know that they're particularly good builders when it comes to walls. Uh, as you read on, it tells us there are shopkeepers, there are merchants. Verse 8 says that uh, Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. A goldsmith? You know, a jeweler, a detail person. There they are mixing the concrete and humping the rocks around. It kind of doesn't fit, does it? So he, he repaired the next section. Then it says, and Hananiah... One of the perfume makers made repairs next to that. Hey-oh. I want the wall to stand up, not smell nice. But here we've got a perfume maker and a goldsmith 
And so it goes on. Verse 12, it says that Shalom, son of Halosheth, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Equality. <clears throat> We've got the girls involved as well as the lads. Interesting. And so you go down. All these different... And what does it teach me? It simply tells me everyone got stuck in. It, it didn't become an issue of... Have you got your builder's certificate? Have you got the qualification? Have you got your health and safety hat? It was like, this sucker needs building, let's build it. Boys, girls, priests, rulers, shopkeepers, goldsmiths, perfume makers, you know, irrelevant. What we need is muscle. What we need is willing hearts. What we need is people that feel what we feel and they just all got stuck in to make it happen. That spirit builds great churches. Not people who are sat waiting for, oh, well, well when, when something comes around to doing church that fits my skill set. No, there's a, there's a heart that comes before that. The heart before that is, God, I so love this church. I'm going, I, what can I do? What can I do? Put me anywhere. Stick me in the crash on the car park. Stick me on the stage. Stick me anywhere. It doesn't matter. What I want to do is make sure we build this well and get your energy and your serving plugged in. I spotted another thing in verse 10. It says that uh, Jedediah, son of Harumpa, some great names in here, <clears throat> he made repairs opposite his house. Opposite his house, right where he lived. Verse 28, it, uh, 23, uh, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs in front of their house. Verse 28, uh, the priests made repairs each in front of his own house. Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. Oh, that's interesting. So basically, they all got stuck in where they lived. Where does building church really start? It doesn't start here. It starts right where I live. Opposite my house. It starts on my street. <laughs> he likes that. It's... That is the quarry phase. Building church isn't about doing events. It's not about Sunday mornings. We come on a Sunday morning to do this together, to, be, to learn, to grow, to be refreshed, to, to, to be clear about the gospel that we preach, to expose people to what we're about us. But actually, the real work of building church begins opposite my house with my next born neighbor with the guys on the next desk at the office, with the kids who are in the class with me at school or college or uni. That's where it starts. That's the real work of building church. Because without that, there's no materials. Without that, what we need to get the walls up to the right height are never going to be found. It starts where I live. Another thing jumped out at me. It started at Sheepgate, Went all the way around, finished at Sheepgate. And nowhere <clears throat> is there any indication that there was a gap. There's nowhere that it says that so-and-so built this section, ooh, and then there was nobody for the next bit, but then so-and-so kicked in. It was seamless. In other words, when everybody does their bit, there's no gaps in the wall. There's no opportunity for things to get out that should get out, shouldn't get out. And there's no opportunity for enemies to get in that shouldn't get in. When we all do our bit. And I just, I would, if, you, if this is your church home, you need to be doing your bit. If you're not doing your bit somewhere, somehow, there's a gap in the wall. And it, it leads to a vulnerability. Some stuff could get out that we don't want to get out. And some stuff could get in we don't want to get in. It needs all hands on deck as appropriate. And the last thing I saw in this chapter, actually, was it just suddenly struck me what the most common word in the chapter was. Because as you read it, it goes next to, next to, next to, next to. Next, nothing to do with the retailer, is the most common word in the chapter. In other words, there's no isolated builders. Everybody was getting on with building the walls Opposite where they lived, just because it needed doing. And they were building next to someone here and next to someone here. 
What an awesome picture of how we have to do church. Church is never about you doing your thing and me doing my thing. It's not about individualism. It's about teamwork. It's about building together. It's about knowing that when my hands get weak, there's something next to me who will help me back up. When I need a rest, because sometimes we all do need rests, there are people alongside who fill the gap for a bit, and then we're back in, and then I compensate for them. And together, these walls go up. I see from that chapter an implicit agreement from these builders. They're effectively all saying, we all agree. We're going to just get stuck in and we're going to get involved. And that spirit builds great churches. Now, I've got to ask, what are you doing to help build this church? Or if it's not your home church, the one that you're part of, what are you doing? Please hear my heart today. I'm not here as a high-pressure salesman to try and get volunteers. I'm here to help you fulfill God's purpose for your life. When you're a child of God, when the Holy Spirit comes and lives within you, he wants you to work for him and with him. He wants you to be part of building his church and extending his kingdom. And that means you feeling something with others and then getting involved with others to that end. Now, whatever you do, I just pray you do it like the guy called Barak in verse 20. He says, next to him, Barak, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house, blah, blah, blah. He, he zealously repaired. Well, that's interesting. Well, nobody else is said to be zealously repairing. They're all just repairing. But you know how it is. Some people are just nutters. <clears throat> some people are just zealous some people just exude it you know we, we need you know characterful people I love that others are more quiet some just get their head down and beaver away we need all types but I pray that you will build through your unique personality bring your gift your skill be who you are but do it zealously if you're the quietest type on the planet who don't want any profile whatsoever be it, but do it zealously. Do it with all your heart. So I see at least two terms of a building agreement here. There's a third one that I want to share with you. And it's this. But ultimately, I believe those walls were built because all the builders agreed that they would respond to God's word as one. See, God speaks a word to his people. And he spoke a word to Nehemiah and the people with him, which was, rebuild these walls. Eventually the walls were up and it became, repopulate the city. The world kept evolving and developing. And it's the same for church, isn't it? You know, when you, when, when you first come to a church, one of the things you have to tune into is, what is God saying to this church right now? When I visit churches, which I, I do a lot these days, one of the first questions I ask the pastor, or try and find out from the website if I can or whatever, is what is the, the now word that God is speaking to you as a people? Because my heart is to come in and strengthen that as a builder, to help you build. Um, and I think the members of the church should always be able to immediately answer that question. What's God saying to the church right now? Bang, out it comes. You know the, the theme you're in, the flow of thought you're in, the emphasis that God's got you in. Sometimes that has a, a project attached to it. Like in Jeremiah's day, it was a practical build the walls project attached to it. But actually, the bigger word was that God wanted his city to be out of trouble and disgrace so that his name was restored in the earth. That was the big, big aim. But the project on the way to that was, let's get these walls built. Let's get these gates back in. Let's get this city back in order. Now, I would suggest to you, therefore, there's kind of 
God's word works at two levels. There's like the bigger picture, and then there's the immediate project. And just as Nehemiah and the people with him got those walls up in record time, I think churches generally these days are very good at projects. So we, we get inspired. Okay, we're going to launch a new ministry in the community, and for that we need a new minibus. Church, we need £20,000 to buy a minibus. And then that's going to allow us to do this, this, this. It's going to be awesome. And you all say, yeah, I feel it. I feel that's good. Come on, let's all get involved. Let's all give. And so we all dig deep. We raise the 20 grand. And a few weeks later, we all come to church, and the bus is sat there, all liveried up, and we all go. Yeah, God's good. We pull together the ministry's launch. We're good at stuff like that, aren't we? We build buildings, we launch ministries, we do missions, we do stuff like that. I want to suggest to you that the walls in Nehemiah's story were one such project. That's all it was. It was a project. They did it well. And chapter 6, verse 15 tells us that the walls were finished in 52 days. That's less than two months. When you read the scripture, it says, because they worked with all their heart. And the, the, it's interesting what it says about their enemies. You just get to the right, right verse. 6.15, if you're making notes. <clears throat> it says, so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, and all the surrounding nations heard, they were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized this work had been done with the help of our God. Love it. But when we have these attitudes, we get the projects done quicker, faster, better, and people look on and go, Whew, how on earth did they manage that? It's got to be with the help of God. Now, they may not even acknowledge God in our day and age, but we know it was not just because we put the effort in, it's because God was with us in the process. Now, that was fine as far as it went. But Nehemiah realized, brilliant, we fulfilled the project word, but actually, there's a bigger word. You see, the reason that Jerusalem was in trouble in the first place was because they'd broken God's law. They'd failed to keep the word which governed their, their life and society and how God wanted them to live as his people. They'd violated that. So he realized, okay, great, we've got the walls up, but now unless we get everybody back on point to keeping the overarching, enduring word, we'll end up slipping back into a mess. So I don't just want all the people to agree, come on, let's keep the now word. Let's get the project done. I want them to agree to keep the bigger, enduring word, which is we will live God's way. So when I say they agreed that they would all respond to God's word as one, at one level it was about a project, but a more important level was we're all going to do things God's way. We're all going to get our lives back on track with him and we'll raise our kids God's way, we'll run our marriages God's way, we'll handle our money God's way, we'll do our work God's way, we'll interact with society God's way because we're God's people in this earth building his house. And it's that bigger word that they signed up to. You can read the story yourself, but essentially what happened was <clears throat> they had to go on a little bit of a refresher course. And in chapter 8, Ezra, who was the priest at the time, opened the book of the law and began to teach the people how to live God's way again so they didn't slip back into the mess that they previously had. And <clears throat> I think for you and I in our day, we have to be willing to revisit what God teaches us about how to live as his people today and undergird those principles with a conviction that says, we're all here because we're going to do it Christ's way. We're going to live by the book. Now let me just show you this quickly. In chapter 8, it says, all the people came together as one, 
in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law, which he did. So on the first day of the seventh month, he brought the law before the people, and he read it aloud from daybreak till noon. That's how all morning he read it. And all, it says all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. He then explains how Ezra was sat on this big platform. They all go off. They come back the next day. They do it again. The next day, in verse 5, it says, Ezra opened the book, and all the people stood up. So there's this kind of piece of drama. Ezra kind of opens the book, and all the people stand. It's kind of this reverential standing. It's this sort of, come on, Ezra, teacher's sort of attitude. It says, they stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And this goes on. It goes on for enough days until all the people realize, now we know how to live God's way. And as you read on down that chapter, it tells that as they went about their lives and began to live God's way, it says their joy was very great. You see, when we all agree together, we're going to live God's way. Joy increases. Blessing increases. Good things accompany us as we do life, following after him with all our heart. Now, what I want to leave you with is this. Right at the start of that chapter, it says all the people came together, and they told Ezra to bring the book of the law out and teach them. That is exactly the opposite to what happens in most churches in the world today. In most churches, the leaders bring the book of God's word out. And they say, oi people, come and listen to what I've got to say. But here you've got the people saying, oi Ezra, get your Bible out and teach us. It's the equivalent of you lot saying, come on Paul, get your Bible out mate. Teach us. How on earth can we raise our kids better? How can we handle our money better? What, what does God think about this issue that's going on with the, with the refugees and stuff in Europe? Look, look, come, open your Bible, teachers, trainers. The hunger was in the crowd. The hunger was in the grassroots. So then when the men and women of God did open the word, no wonder they got a response of, amen, amen, and, and God was on them, and they were on their face before him because they were hungry. That's why I say, I think there was a spirit of agreement amongst them, which basically was, we all agree, we're going to live God's way as one. We're going to respond to God's word as one. And I think it's that same spirit that's got to get on churches today. There's got to be a willingness that says, yeah, the projects are great. We've got all these trendy ministries <clears throat> we've got the vehicles, we've got the buildings, we've got all the stuff. Yeah, we've got our Twitter accounts and we've got all the stuff that's modern. But fundamentally, all that is rubbish. Unless there is a core agreement, a building agreement amongst the people which says we all feel what God feels about what we're doing. We're all going to get involved in this building and we are all going to respond to God's word as one. And when I say God's word, I mean his enduring, living word. The word of truth, the Bible, the New Testament, all that Jesus taught us. We're going to live that way as best we know how. And if we're honest, we don't know how. We need more information, more education. So the same heart that was on those people in Nehemiah's days has got to get on us, which says, come on, church. Let's help each other learn God's ways. Let's look at the word together. Let's learn together. If you see something great on a podcast somewhere, let me know so that I can learn it too. Come on, come on, pastors and leaders. Help us to navigate this next season. And together, this energy from the crowd and leaders together is what gets the job done. If you read down through Nehemiah, eventually you'll get to chapter 9, verse 38. And it's after all this long session of re-education. And it simply says this. In view of all this, because of all that we've read about how to live God's way, in view of all this, 
we are making a binding agreement. We're going to put it in writing. Now, leaders, our Levites and our priests are going to put their seals on it. As you follow it down, basically, they literally signed a piece of paper to say, we agree to keep the covenant. We agree to live God's way. It was like a covenant to keep the covenant they signed. That's how, how, how sort of strong we were about it. Well, that to me, that's just a picture of something that goes on in the heart of every Christian at some point in their journey. And every now and again, God has to remind us of it. We're not here as random Christians floating through life, hoping one day we'll get to heaven. We're here as men and women of God who feel something. Something got you out of bed this morning and got you down to church. I hope it wasn't just the wife or the husband. I hope it wasn't just, well, the kids like the kids' church. I hope it wasn't, well, we've been going for the last 20 years, we better go again. I hope you, you felt something in your spirit, you sense, it's going to be a good day in the God's house today. Come on, maybe my flesh doesn't feel like it, but come on, let's go and bring our faith, let's bring our encouragement, let's bring who we are. Come on, let's do it. So we, we feel what God feels because we know we need to be taught and strengthened and energized for what's coming in the week. So we feel it. We get involved in the process. And our commitment is, Lord, what you speak, we will do. The now word of the project, but more importantly, the bigger word of living God's way as his people in the world today. Time has gone. I've not got to my fourth thought, but let me just throw it in quickly as a conclusion. <clears throat> I believe for the season you're in as a church, it's a season of building. And there needs to be an implicit agreement amongst you that says, Lord, help me to feel what you feel. God, help me to find my place and get involved in helping with the building. God, help me to live by your word and your ways. When those things are in place, it, it galvanizes you as builders around the project of doing church together. Now in Nehemiah's story, they reached that, that pinnacle. It's like a great point. And Nehemiah went back to Babylon. And 13 years he spent back in Babylon, hearing news of how things were going back there, and it was going great. Then one day he thought to himself, I'm going to go back and have a visit and just you know, cheer the troops on and all that. He goes back, and what he finds, you'll read in the last couple of chapters, he finds that within 13 years, some of them have already started to slip again. And they'd agreed, we're going to keep the Sabbath, but some people were trading on the Sabbath. Naughty boys. They'd agreed, we won't intermarry with the surrounding nations, but some of them had. And he found children who couldn't even speak the language of Judah. It was like, this is wrong. This isn't right. They'd all said, we will bring our first fruits and our tithes to keep the priests in post so they can have the spiritual service of God going. And he discovered that some of the priests had had to go back and work in the fields again because the people weren't bringing their tithes in. And when you read those chapters, Nehemiah gets rather mad. It says that he rebuked them. He corrected them. It actually says... He pulled out their beards. And he says he made them make an oath to go back to doing it God's way. And he's, he's, the book closes with him sort of going, God, help me. You know, he, he'd come back after 13 years in the same heart he left. He'd come back feeling what God felt, being prepared to get involved, and wanting to do it God's way. And he discovered that some people had drifted. And so he helped them back on track now I'm not in su uh, suggesting you should call curses down on each other and pull each other's beards out and all that but what I am suggesting is you do have to have another term of your building agreement which is we're going to protect one another what we're building matters this is the house of God it's the reputation of God most high in our community to our lives it really matters so if I do see you going off on one, if I do see you starting to exhibit behavior that, that detracts from the testimony of Christ in this church, I'm going to be such a good friend to you, I'm going to just pull you back in. 
I will have the hard conversation with you. I'll speak to you about the language that's inappropriate. Not out of legalism and duty and harshly, but out of love and compassion for what we've agreed we're going to build together. I honestly believe the future for this church is so bright. God's got you here purposefully, not randomly. He's raised up the leadership you've got. He's allowed you to go on the journey you've gone. And you don't always know reasons why things have happened, but at the end of the day, you are what you are. You're the product of the journey. And it's special. It's precious. And what God now asks of you together is that you would settle at the start of this year. We feel what God feels. And if I don't feel it, Lord, help me. We're going to get involved in building this together. And Lord, whatever needs doing, I'm in. As best I can, I'm in. Lord, together, we're going to have a reputation for keeping your word as one man so that you can command your blessing on it. And if we see each other drifting off, we'll love each other so much, we'll tuck one another back in again and be our brother's keeper. The spirit of that kind of building agreement builds great churches, which is your destiny. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you that you work through people. You work through us. And we commit ourselves afresh at the start of this year to you as our Lord and Savior, but also to working with you in building your house in the earth right where we live. Lord, we ask that you would open the eyes of our heart to see what you see and to feel what you feel like never before. Lord, I pray that you'd put upon us a spirit of willingness to zealously get involved in working together, to keep your word and ways and build this community in a way which reflects your heart and reputation. So never again would it be said of us that we're in trouble, we're in disgrace, we're in a mess. Let it just be said what an awesome thing God is doing among the people of God in this place. Lord, we ask it so that you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.